0: This is Barry Knapp with Ironsides Macroeconomics. It's Sunday evening, October twenty-second, five forty-five, Colorado time. Shockingly, the Broncos just won a game. I'm not a Broncos fan, Patriots game, but this fan. But this year, that's shocking too. Um, the note this week was titled "Demonetization." Um, we're getting this out on Sunday night um, ahead of. A flight to new york city tomorrow morning for the robin hood investors conference it should be uh, an amazing conference there's quite a number of good speakers but uh, highlighted by stan druckenmiller paul tudor jones of course who was one of the key founders of the robin hood foundation izzy englander ken griffin stevie cohen will all be uh, speaking at the conference or hosting other speakers at the conference so should be quite good this um audio summary of our weekly podcast is going out to the full one is going out to everyone this week including the free subscribers this would be a good time to ask us for a trial subscription next week's note although it's essentially chatham house rules so i won't be attributing uh any of my the thoughts that i hear to any one particular individual um should should sharpen up my ideas quite a bit, um, but uh, not that we haven't been on track recently. We've obviously been quite negative since the last Fed meeting, and um, we viewed this as their third communication blunder of the process. Or um, perhaps they don't view it as a blunder, but uh, but we surely do. And we reset our objectives for the S&P to go back to 4,200 after that last Fed meeting. Um, of, Eliminated our base case of rallying back to the July high or even getting all the way to 4,800 by the end of the year, based on what we consider to be overly hawkish Fed um, forward guidance and expected that um, there was a pretty good chance that the 10 year part of the curve would get to 5%, which sure enough we did last week. Tried to bounce off that a little bit, but um, um, we really haven't had very sustainable bounces thus far. as I'm recording this, S&P's are up ten handles. It's not surprising they've they've bounced on Mondays a couple of weeks in a row, but um, <clears throat> don't really think that that rebound is sustainable. And as S&P's try to bounce, ten-year note futures are down five plus thirty seconds or so. So this week's note um, had four basic sections to it: um, a section on debt monetization and the role of QE over the last 15 years or so. Um, And now the feds hope to get out of the debt monetization business, but um, we don't think they'll be able to. We then talked about pandemic data distortion and how it may be flattering the retail sales uh, numbers. We then went on to discuss whether the feds balance sheet is still adding accommodations. I think our approach to Thinking that there's three primary channels for the Fed's balance sheet to impact markets uh, is a little bit unique, and so we wanted to give a bit of an update on that, um, just how the QT process is going, <clears throat> and then wrap it all up with some final thoughts on the market. So first on um, the debt monetization or demonetization, as the Fed would like, to, uh, uh, like it to proceed. Um, we began by providing some historical perspective how initially QE um, during the global financial crisis was a way for banks to try and delever. Banks were unwilling to do that until the stress tests and the government essentially said. The capital structure, the credit part of the capital structure is money good for the top 19 banks that allowed them to sell equity recapitalize and move on to that point it made no sense. To be selling their treasuries or mortgage backed securities that was the most liquid part of their balance sheet that would have only left their balance sheets less liquid Uh, having had a front row seat at Lehman Brothers, I can give you firsthand knowledge that that's how. uh, Big banks were approaching this at that time, but of course. QE, which was meant to essentially be the Fed's lender of last resort function, quickly morphed into a way to manage the economy and QE2, operation twist, reinvestment of mortgage backed securities and more mortgage backed securities and then QE3 um, was essentially the same as what happened during the pandemic where the Dash for Cash forced the Fed to buy unlimited quantities of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. But then that seamlessly evolved into buying you know, 80 billion of treasuries a month and 40 billion of mortgages a month and unlimited reinvestment of those securities. And that of course caused it a, just an absolute boom in housing house. The Case-Shiller composite index went up 46%. And all this um, essentially was debt monetization. We described it as the mother's milk of modern monetary theory, which led to um, what started again as a way to help facilitate deleveraging of household balance sheets, deleveraging of the banking system, but essentially all that debt wound up on the government balance sheet. And while some will look at, at the current situation and say, well, government spending is not quite as large a percent of GDP as it was during the depths of the pandemic. Of course, that was crazy amounts of, uh, of stimulus. But even so, we're left with that debt. And public private sector debt in the financial sector or in the household is deflationary, but government debt is inflationary. The government ultimately has no recourse other than to try and inflate their way out of it. This is something we referenced a paper a few weeks ago and talked about how inflation, unexpected inflation played a pretty big role in winding down the world war ii debt and once again you know we have the success of government debt and so um there is no way for the fed to get out of debt monetization they right now may be thinking gee we don't want to facilitate any more government spending but they're not even really willing to talk about it so um we see no way out for the fed and uh and this will be an inflationary impulse through this business cycle in our view um, we then discussed the political economy a little bit the parallels between <clears throat> lbj's great society all that excessive spending that really did kick off the great inflation and uh, and president biden's uh, current situation there was some very interesting polling last week we showed a university of michigan uh sentiment by political party and showed that how all the you know the sentiment is so negative on the republican side it's it's negative for independence that's typically when um the party in power loses is when the other party is more upset and so we are setting up for that kind of a a a scenario we also had a bloomberg morning consult poll last week that was um you know seven swing states trump was beating biden by four points but on single issue polling which we don't put a huge amount of credence on, but still on those single issues, um, the economy, even infrastructure, which Trump never passed anything on and Biden did, uh, the, the um, public, Republicans, independents in particular, trust Trump more than they do Biden, so we think there's a chance, a pretty good chance that Biden will end up um, pulling himself out of the race like LBJ did and Uh, Trump could easily get pushed out of the race as well, but we're absolutely convinced that this debt and deficits issue is going to rise to the top of the public's concerns and be one of the very most important issues in the election in 2024, and neither of the two leading candidates uh, has a good story to tell on that subject. So moving on from there to the pandemic data distortion, we showed retail sales on both a seasonally adjusted basis and an unseasonally adjusted basis in, in the report this week, just to show you how volatile those retail sales are they spike around Christmas, then come off sharply September, they typically come down after back to school selling season is done. Um, but we think that the pandemic polluted that seasonal adjustment factor um, and such that the really strong numbers in September, and most likely in August are are probably not. The true underlying trend there's so much anecdotal evidence out there, including the beige book last week that says that consumption is actually softening quite a bit. Remember that only represents 20% of total personal consumption expenditures services are two thirds. The government doesn't have a clue what services spending looks like till they get their flash estimate of the quarterly services survey. 50 days after the end of the quarter, so well after this advanced estimate of GDP that we're going to get this week. So that's why services spending ends up getting revised so much in these reports. We don't think the economy is nearly as strong as uh, the flash estimate of GDP is going to indicate on uh, on Thursday. Um, so that's it on that. Moving on to the Fed's balance sheet again, we believe there's three primary channels. There's the liquidity bank reserves channel. There's longer duration, real rates, the duration effect, and then there's the volatility effect. And so we walked through in the note those three various channels, and we think, although under our liquidity construct, which is total Fed assets owned outright, less the general treasury general account, and less the, uh, less the RRP programs, not just the RRP, but also sponsored repo, which is not nearly as big, but still not insignificant, The rest of the liquidity is available to the private sector, except right now we think banks are hoarding reserves in a little bit of a repeat of what they did in 1937-38 when Mariner Eccles thought that they could drain reserves out of the system because it was an inflationary risk and they caused the recession within a depression. We think banks are hoarding reserves right now as well. They're worried about their um, multifamily real estate risks. They're worried about rising credit costs. And um, the inverted curve just makes it such that banks have no alternative but to shrink. And that was the main message out of bank earnings, this uh, regional bank earnings last week is that the outlooks were really downbeat and that's why the stocks sold off in our view. So we don't think the liquidity channel is particularly accommodative right now. We've heard some commentators on TV Um, people that do similar things to us saying, oh, the Fed's balance sheet's still offering accommodation. We don't think it's really offering much in the way of liquidity, despite that reserves being at 3.1 trillion because we think banks are hoarding them. Now, moving on to real rates, obviously there's this big debate about term premium and the models and whether those models are valid or not. Term premium's moved up a lot, but it's still historically low. Um, However, real rates if you consider where the 10-year real rate median level was from 2002 through 2008 pre-global financial crisis pre-qe the median level was 209 basis points we're at almost 250 right now so on that basis alone um, the real rate channel doesn't look particularly accommodative right now it looks rather tight And uh, we think the term premium arguments are kind of weak because they're theoretical models that would indicate that there's still some accommodation from the feds balance sheet, but um, it does it it appears that government supply is offsetting. uh, The fact that the fed holds you know a little less than a third of total treasuries outstanding because of expectations that that number outstanding is just going to keep going up Um, and then finally on the volatility channel it's you know. The move index, which is short-term gamma, is 130 basis points. It averaged 100 in the 2000s, so that's a bit elevated. Longer-term ball would probably be higher if the Fed didn't own as many mortgage-backed securities, and the vast percentage of the mortgage-backed securities uh, market wasn't, in essence, out of the money, meaning most people hold 30-year fixed-rate mortgages at much lower levels. So there's not that much convexity in the market um and the housing market is weakening decidedly so you know new purchase applications are at you know multi-decade lows so we're just not getting that volatility impulse so volatility could be higher but it is historically reasonably high real rates are reasonably high and we think there's reserve hoarding going on so we do not think the fed's balance sheet is providing accommodation right now so final thoughts um we set 4200 as a target after that last fed meeting we're pretty much there we set five percent as something of a target on tens we're pretty much there we thought you know we'd get through two percent on ten year real rates we're at almost two and a half percent um still though the market to us does not look like it's a fat pitch yet if you just think tactically between now and the fed meeting and i don't know no this is short term and there's lots of you out there with longer term time horizons and you should have longer term time horizons but Consider the data the Fed's going to get between now and the Fed meeting. GDP will be strong. PCED consensus forecast right now is for a three tenths of a percent core. And employment cost index, I think the headline expectation is for one percent or so. Uh, We do think wages are, with what we think is going on in productivity, we think wages are sustainable. And the Fed may conclude something similar. But there's not enough in that data to get the Fed to change their narrative between now and the meeting, Powell's press conference. The only thing that can do that is a financial crisis. And that tail risk is getting fatter. And in a lot of ways, the market is acting similarly to what it did prior to the crash of '87. We wrote a report in January of. 2018 at Guggenheim called Echoes of 87. It was the same idea, you get this move in rates, equity investors console themselves by saying it's being driven by growth. We can't look at Bloomberg or look at a story without somebody repeating that same story. Yeah, this is all about stronger growth. It's not really, it's a little, you know, that is affecting the Fed's um, uh, reaction function to an extent, but this is really about supply and uh, the Fed losing their best or the treasury excuse me losing their best customers for that supply asian central banks because of the change in the correlation of the dollar uh banking system because of the deeply inverted yield curve which is less inverted now but is leaving a real mark as it disinverts by a bear steepening and causes massive losses in bank portfolios remember a third of their holdings are securities and then of course the feds no longer buying and so um there is a chance that um, the market could be decidedly lower between now and the Fed meeting. The Fed ultimately is not going to hike again, we don't believe, but we need some confirmation of that and some visibility into uh, cuts in, in the first half of 2024, which we think are absolutely necessary for the market to be able to absorb the treasury supply, the multifamily real estate supply, uh, office supply, high yield supply, um, we're going to get hit with a tsunami and with a deeply inverted curve and uh, wounded banking system. It's not going to be a pretty sight in 2024 unless the Fed uh, decides to um, change their story. We think they will, but we could have some more pain before we get there. So that's it for me this week. Again, off to New York and um, uh, should be looking forward to next week's node. Hopefully, it'll have lots of cool insights to it. Barry Nap from Ironsides. Have a good week, everyone. Thank you.